0: Good morning. I appreciate Chris uh, tuning this morning because if you were with us at the early morning uh, camp out devotional on Saturday morning, we talked about tuning a little bit and it was a great uh, reminder even as we were, were here this morning that, that uh, Proverbs 2.2 talks about tuning our hearts to God's wisdom. And as a part of that, we said that to be in tune with God's wisdom means we know when it's not right. And it really speaks volumes uh, for for Chris to know. I don't know how many of you didn't notice that things weren't right, but a couple of you who are musicians have an ear for that. It's interesting that the more familiar you are with playing and the more familiar you are with your instrument and the tone that it's supposed to be, the more that you can recognize it when when things just aren't right. And that's really what we wanted to do with this study on wisdom, with this look at biblical wisdom. We said it's really easy for us to deceive ourselves. It's really easy for us to fool ourselves, but we want to... Tune our ear to wisdom, we want to train our hearts to god 's wisdom and, and focusing on his word in such a way that when we hear something that 's not right, when we start to to maybe head down that path of self deception and fooling ourselves, that we can we can recognize it and and retune our hearts to god 's word and that 's our desire as we even look at the book of james and as I know you have all committed this morning to memorizing. Just got really quiet in here. James 1, beginning in verse 19. Are we ready? Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. All be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts. Thank you. One more time just for me, and I'll sit there at the end. Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must all be quick to listen slow to speak and slow to anger. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word that God has planted in your hearts if you save your souls. See, I'm still working on that. Well, hey... We're gonna add we're gonna add one more now this next one verse, we're gonna add the very next verse. And this one, if you remember the old radio station days, this is the phrase that pays, right? If you were the sixth caller and had to call in with the phrase that pays, we know the next verse we're gonna be looking at has been the theme and the lens by which we've been thinking about the book of James. How do we keep from fooling ourselves? So for this next week, we're gonna add verse twenty-two to that and say, but don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourself. So we're going to work on that one. I'm going to work harder on the last part of 21. And uh, we'll add 22 as we begin to look uh, at memorizing that for next week. I hope, I hope this is something that's becoming a good... I, I know I'm, I'm beginning to memorize a passage. When I wake up in the middle of the night and I start working with, understand this... My dear brothers and sisters. I know, and it's, it's wonderful to, re, to recognize that, that where do my idle thoughts go? And, and honestly, if I want to be in tune with God's word and his wisdom, I want my idle thoughts to go to his word. And I, I, I honestly, I want to get to the point where in those moments of anger, I'm thinking of human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. That's what I want to think about. I want to think in those moments of temptation that I want to get rid of all the filth and evil in my life, life and humbly accept the word that God has planted in my in my heart. For it has the power to save my soul. I want that to be... What is tuning my mind and my actions and, and so therefore, I hope as you're doing this that your idle thoughts, if you're uh, sitting at a traffic light for three, four, five minutes sometimes in the city of Louisville sitting at a traffic light or or having idle thoughts that your your mind will go to these verses as well too that's our desire as we're as we're tuning ourselves to wisdom and this week though, we've been talking about how Living under the authority of God's Word is the only protection we have against fooling ourselves. And this week, I want us to talk about fooling ourselves about faith. The danger of fooling ourselves about faith. And and in this passage, James is going to draw a contrast for us that's going to be very important for us to understand. And he starts off right away talking about how those who claim to have faith... And we live in a world where people claim to have faith all the time. Uh, unfortunately, it sometimes seems like people equate faith with maybe something that someone else did somewhere else in their lives. I encountered this sometimes when I have conversations with people, and I ask them, I said, tell me about your faith. Well, my grandmother was a believer in, in Jesus. Oh, okay, well, what about you? Well, my grandmother was a believer in Jesus. You know, sometimes we even live in a culture where people have confused being a citizen of America with being a Christian as well, too, being a believer, claiming, well, tell me about your faith. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a citizen of the United States of America. Well, that's great, but I, I don't know that that's the same thing that we're, we're talking about. There are many people who claim a faith when it has an advantage to them. Although that seems to be slipping away more and more every day that people claim to have faith when it's an advantage. I've, I've had experiences in the past where a young couple would, would come to me and say, hey, we'd like to, we'd like to get married in the, in, in the church, and can you help us with that? Wonderful. Why don't you tell me about your faith? And then they attribute it to maybe a, a grandmother at some point in their time, or maybe they attribute it to some event that happened in their own childhood many, many years before. They're claiming something that maybe isn't being demonstrated in their lives at this very moment. There's a pastor teacher, David Platt, who warns against this idea of being dangerously deceived. He even tells this interesting story like this. He says, imagine you and I set up a meeting for lunch at a restaurant, and before uh, you arrive before I do. You wait and wait and wait, but 30 minutes later, I still haven't arrived. When I finally show up, completely out of breath, I say to you, I'm sorry I'm late. When I was driving over here, my car had a flat tire, and I pulled over on the side of the interstate to fix it. While I was fixing it, I accidentally stepped into the road, and a Mack truck going about 70 miles per hour suddenly hit me head on. It hurt, but I picked myself up, finished putting the spare tire on the car, and drove here to meet you quite an event. If this were the story I shared with you, you would know I was either deliberately lying or completely deceived, he says, because it's impossible for us to think that I could get hit by a Mack truck at 70 miles per hour and not look any different than I did before. And he places the same challenge before believers. In light of this, he says, I feel like I'm on some pretty safe ground in assuming that once people truly come face-to-face with the God of the universe, face-to-face with Jesus in the flesh, and Jesus reaches down into the depth of their hearts, save their soul from the clutches of sin, and transforms their lives to follow Him, they are going to look different. Very different. People who claim to be Christians while their lives look no different from the rest of the world are clearly not Christians, Platt says. That seems to be the context to which James is writing this portion of the letter, this last part of two that I want us to look at. It's those who are claiming to have faith, but their, their lives don't really reflect the faith that they claim. And as we think about this, I I want us to consider this morning what it would mean for you and I to live in such a way that there would be no doubt. That you and I would live our lives in obedience to Christ, in faithfulness in such a way that those who we came in contact with would have no doubt About our faith in Christ. We we would look as different than somebody who got hit head on by a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour. There would be no doubt about the transformation that Christ had worked and was working in our lives. So let's look at at James chapter 2 together. Again, I want us to begin in verse 14. It's interesting. Uh, if you've been with us for a while, you know that the last part of 1 kind of sets up the things that we're talking about. The last part of chapter 1 talks about if you claim to be religious, and then he talks about controlling your tongue that we'll look at next week, but, but if you claim to be religious and yet you're not caring for orphans and widows in their distress and being corrupted by the world, then, then it's just a claim. So look with me as he begins again this conversation in James 2, beginning in 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say goodbye and have a good day, stay warm and eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was called the friend of God. So you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good deeds. Now maybe you caught it. This was one of the most controversial books to be added to the Bible. This was the most controversial to be included because of that statement there at the end that we, in verse 24, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. If you're familiar, faith alone is a core tenet of the Christian gospel. It's a core tenet that we have a relationship with God. Our salvation comes... Uh, as by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. So for James to say in this passage that we are not saved by faith alone was very controversial. It was very suspect. Too many people felt like this was in, 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 um, this was in uh, opposition to what some of the things that Paul was talking about, especially in, in Romans, about how we're made right in God's sight. But it's another indication for us that when we read Scripture, context matters. The, the audience matters. Who it was written to and what, was a, what it was about really matters because we know Paul was writing to a group of people who were thinking that their actions made them right with God. They believed that if they, if they took on the Jewish law system, if they followed the practice of circumcision, if they did these things, then that was what made them right with God. That's what brought about their salvation. In this passage, James is dealing with people who are claiming to have salvation, but their lives don't look any different. So they're they're not in conflict with one another. They're actually complementing one another. Paul's addressing those before they come to faith in Christ, how it is that we do put our faith in Christ. Again, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But James is addressing those who are among the believers who are a part of their gathered churches, who are claiming to have faith in Christ, but their lives do not reflect, their lives do not reflect that relationship. We know that even as we, we look at verses 14 and 15 and 16, how, how he even introduces this section. That oh, was interesting. He asked the question, what good is it? I mean, this is, this is one of those kind of a great rhetorical questions. It's obviously not good at all. Right, the way he's phrasing the question, what good is it in verse 14? He even, he even kind of makes a, a little sandwich here in, in 16 by saying, well, what good does that do? So this idea of good and what good is it and what good does that do becomes the sandwich by which he introduces the idea and proposes the question. And, and that's what I want us to address this morning. What good is it? What is a good faith? What is the kind of faith that does bring about good, that does bring about life, that does bring about salvation? What does that good faith look like? If we we know he's making the comparison to this faith is not good and does not bring about good things, what is the the kind of faith that brings about good things? And, And if you see before you, there's this idea that the, this good faith, this faith in Christ alone, this good faith that brings about transformation is more than words and ideas. It's demonstrated obedience, and it is the proof of life for the believer. So it's more than words and ideas, it is demonstrated obedience. And it is proof, the proof of life for the believer. This is the good faith that James is unpacking for us this morning. So let's look, let's look at what I mean by more than words and ideas. We already said that there's a, there's a claiming here that's taking place. In verse 14, talking to the, to the brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions, do you claim to have faith? Even when he goes and gives an example here, Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing, and you say. Again, the focus is just on words alone. You're just claiming something. You're just saying something. There's not a follow-through. There's not an evidence. There's not a reflection of those things. He's, He's laying out in verses 15 through 17 the idea that this faith, this good faith, is more than just the words that we use. It's more than just saying the right things. Sometimes in our self-deception, we can feel like if we just say the right words, that's what makes us right with God. And we who have grown up in the church can be masters at saying the right words. We learn the phrases. Maybe we know the songs. Maybe we, we know the scriptures in such a way that we know how to say the right words to make you think that our lives have been transformed. But they're just words to us. They haven't really brought about the kind of transformation that, that James is talking about. They haven't really brought about the good faith. It's still the, it's still the not good faith in our lives. It's still the life of faith that doesn't bring about good things. So just <clears throat> excuse me, just words alone here. Besides words, if you look, he even gives another example uh, and, and introduces this idea of of well the ideas well, the things that I believe to be true And in verses eighteen through twenty he gives this example of of those who might say well uh, i you know I, I see my faith as being different than my needs and and uh, assuming that sort of idea this counter argument of spiritual gifts that that I can have a faith gift without having a a deed gift or a work gift he said that's not, that 's not is it that's that, that's, that idea isn 't Consistent with what it means to walk with Christ. He even gives the example of demons. Beginning in, in 19, you say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. He's referencing what we call the Shema, the Jewish statement of faith that the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. He's, he's referring to this statement of faith for God's people in His oneness and in His holiness and in our response to love for Him. But he's saying even the demons know that's true, but they still respond as demons. It's it's, it's a mental act. It's an idea that they would agree with, but it doesn't lead to the kind of worship that demonstrates a changed life. So he gives this picture of words and ideas. As much as you and I can fall prey to just using the right words when we're together, we can also feel like that our faith in Christ is a, maybe a multiple choice test or maybe something that we could pass a, a content exam. What do I believe about God? What do I believe about the world? What do I believe about Christ? What do I believe about the church? And, and we can sometimes fall into the habit of thinking our understanding or our mental capacity to grasp those things is what makes us believers. But, but James really wants to push back on that. It's not just assenting to a, a group of intellectual ideas, nor is it just using the right words and phrases to try to communicate to people that we are believers. It's something much more than that. And I think that's why he's unpacking this passage this way, giving us this example. And he's showing us, really highlighting in verses 15 through 17 here, that our, our good faith is more than words, ideas, and ideas. It is truly demonstrated obedience. It's how do we respond in obedience to what God has instructed us and called us to do. As I mentioned, at the end of chapter 1, there was this picture of caring for the needs of others, and that's the first example that he gives. If we're, if we're just claiming with words that we care about the needs of others and not following through with that, then our lives are not demonstrating obedience. Now, I got to, this is a hard one. This is a difficult one because we we live in a world where it's often hard to understand when when should we take care of the needs of others and when we shouldn't. I mean, let's be honest. We've all driven around and at almost any intersection, there'll be someone with a cardboard sign asking for some sort of assistance. And I know it's difficult for us as believers to figure out, how do I reconcile this passage with what I experience every day? And I don't have all the answers. By any means, I don't have all the answers. But what I will say is this, that in this particular passage, he's referencing brothers and sisters. He's referencing those who are a part of the body of Christ. And the benefit of the body of Christ is these are known people and known situations. And and, and what I mean by that is when we see the needs of others and we know them, We know their needs. We know the difficulties that they've been. They're a part of our church family. It helps us know how to apply this passage a little better. It is super hard. It is super hard when we encounter people out in the world who are struggling with the brokenness and the homelessness and the poverty of the world to know how to apply a passage like this. Sometimes, as the popular book has phrased, we've got to figure out how do we help without hurting. And, and one of the really the only ways I know how to do that is how do we make the unknown known? How do, we, how do we see a person in a situation and move them from the realm of an unknown person in an unknown situation to a known person and a known situation? Because I really, I don't, I don't have any ability to truly understand how to help until that person is a known person in a known situation. I know it's hard. It is really hard. Because we all struggle with how do, I, how, do I, how do I apply this when I run into people who I see on the street or I see around. But ultimately, if we're going to bring about the sort of transformation that comes through the gospel, we have to move from the unknown to the known. Sometimes that begins with seeing them. I know it's hard because a lot of times we like to uh, we, we feel like if I don't make eye contact, then I won't have to respond. Kind of like when somebody in a group calls on you to pray, right? If I don't make eye contact, then, then I don't have to do that. But, but in reality, we are here as representatives of Christ. And he has called us in, 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 in demonstrated obedience to apply our faith into a hurting world and it doesn't mean that the answers are easy but it does mean we have to wrestle with them it does mean we have to look at passages like this and say i can't just feel like well when it comes to my giving to those in need it's just words and ideas because that's what's being rejected here is not demonstrated obedience it's what's being rejected here is just responding with words and ideas Sometimes that means getting to know the people who who serve that population well. Maybe it's folks at the East End Community Ministries or maybe it's folks at, at, at the ReCenter, Center who, who can help us understand better how to apply passages like this, how to make the unknown known, how to see people well. I know they can be tremendous resources for us to think through how to apply things like this. But I, I feel like when we look at this passage as believers, we're torn with how does this apply. But I think if, if, if we can begin with the idea that, that we, can, we, can, we can best meet the needs of those that we understand the needs of, the known people in the known situations, that doesn't give us a pass on the people that we see on the streets. It just means that the best way to help them is to make the unknown known to see them, to acknowledge them, to to, to want to walk with them, to invite them in to walk with us until we can determine how to do that. And again, I think some of the the resources that we have in our community can be wonderful resources to help us think through some of these things. But that's that's this picture that's being demonstrated here, this picture of demonstrated obedience that we would that we would, as he said at the end of chapter 1, that we would put our faith into action. That we would, we would put our, that our religion wouldn't be proved worthless. That, that we would demonstrate pure and genuine religion in the sight of God by caring for those and demonstrating this obedience. He even gives scriptural examples. We looked at one of them this morning through our scripture reading, the scriptural example of Abraham. Abraham's a wonderful example for us because that's one of those passages we look back to the Old Testament and say, yes, even in the book of Genesis, we were declared righteous before God because of our faith. That, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness reminds us that from the very beginning, it has always been about Belief in God that brings about righteousness, and we saw that demonstrated in abraham 's life through the picture of calling to sacrifice his son. What an unthinkable thing to do! How unthinkable was it that that the one that that, that Abraham had seen as the answer to all his prayers, his son Isaac, the waiting that he and Sarah had for the birth of the child, the the future promises to come through that child to say, now you're going to go sacrifice that? Thankfully, that passage tells us, as we read this morning, that it was a test by God. It was a test for Him to discern whether or not his, His faith was more than words and ideas. But was His faith truly demonstrated obedience? We saw the same thing in this passage deals with with Rahab and the situation that that she was in, that she recognized that the God of Israel was great and strong and and powerful. She recognized the glory of that God and she demonstrated obedience by hiding the spies and allowing them to leave through the night and, and, and assisting them in that. She just didn't respond in words and ideas but she truly responded in her deeds, in her demonstrated obedience. So so James has given us a picture here of not just how it applies to our lives and the lives of those around us, but also how this demonstrated obedience, we can look at examples from Scripture and see as well. That we can see how important and how helpful that is for us. But, But thirdly, I want you to see that he, he concludes this chapter with a wonderful picture of, the, of proof of life, of proof of, of new life, where he says, Just as the body, in verse 26, is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. How do we know that someone is truly alive? Sometimes we've joked that, uh, that when we're looking for volunteers, we're looking for someone who can fog a mirror. Okay, do you know what that means? That means if we held a mirror up to their face, would there be enough breath to fog it? We say, yep, that's, that's the person we're looking for. That's really not the person we're looking for. But it's that picture of, of, of you just got to be alive. And that breath is that indicator that someone is alive. If you've ever been trained in any kind of CPR, the first thing they do is they want you to check for breathing. They want you to check and see if the person is breathing. That's a a proof of life. That's a demonstration that they are, are truly alive. And what James is telling the folks here is that the, the actions, the act of obedience, the demonstrated obedience of following God and serving one another, loving God and loving our neighbor, we see the, the great commandment here come together, loving God and loving our neighbor, it comes together as this sign of the proof that we're alive. It's the demonstration that we truly are alive in Christ. It's the demonstration that our lives have been changed and transformed We look differently, we think differently, we respond differently when these are applied to our lives in a way that demonstrates transformation. That demonstrates that we look like we've been hit by a Mack truck. That's undeniable. That sort of change would be undeniable to see in someone. Proof of life in their breath is is undeniable. The, the sort of act of obedience that calls people to care for the needs of those around, to put their, their faith in practice, to, to put their religion to use, not just claiming in words and ideas, but to truly live demonstrated and transformed lives becomes truly undeniable. I've heard some pastor authors say it this way, that our lives should only be explainable by the good news of the gospel. That we should live in such a way that they could only... You know, why is that person like that? Why did they respond in that way? Why did they do that? Our lives should be lived out in such a way that they can only be explained by what the good news of Jesus Christ has done in us. Because nothing else makes sense. When we live our lives in that way, we're not just claiming to have faith. We're not just talking about the, the theological ideas that we know. We're not just talking about the phrases that we've got comfortable using as we describe our our faith. We're talking about real, true, undeniable transformation that gets worked out as we're applying scripture to our lives and seeing the examples of faith. That when we look at, at how we live our lives differently with those around us who are hurting, how it changes the way that we see things, that we could We could live out our faith in such a real and vibrant way that people know we're alive. I'm afraid some people encounter Christians or maybe people who claim to be Christians and they're not sure if they're alive. (laughs) Maybe they don't necessarily give off a, a proof of life. Maybe they don't necessarily live in a way. You know, we heard this on Friday night in some of our testimonies. That, unfortunately, the, in, in some of our experiences, we encountered people through our life who claimed to have a faith, who knew an awful lot about the Bible. But in reality, their lives didn't reflect that. There wasn't a proof of life. There wasn't a life of demonstrated obedience. That, that there were people who claimed to be believers that we all encountered through all our life that... That even though they knew Scripture really well, their lives didn't look any different. So, assuming they weren't deliberately lying, as David Platt said, maybe they're just horribly deceived into thinking that following Christ doesn't, doesn't bring about that kind of transformation. So that, that is my prayer for us. That is my prayer for us that we would we would seriously consider the faith that we have in Christ. Even this morning, that we would seriously consider, hey, maybe I've been around church a long time. Maybe I've gotten really good at using the right words. Maybe if there was a true false test on the doctrine of God, I'd get an A. But does my life demonstrate the change that only happens to the power of the Holy Spirit? Can my life only be explained because the power of the Holy Spirit transforming my life? I don't want people to think, well, that's a good guy. I want them to see that that's somebody that God is working through by His grace. That's different. It is different. It's a life that you and I don't get the credit for. It's the one that points people to the one good and true God. That's the faith that I think James is trying to, to remind the believers of here. He's, he's cautioning against those who are just claiming faith and really saying, no, if we've got true religion, if we've got true faith, if we've got truly a relationship with God, we will look different. And I want you to... I think I, I'm always asking you every week to consider. And I would, I, would, I would pray today that you would consider your faith in Christ. And that you would pray that through the power of His Spirit that you wouldn't, you wouldn't fall into those bad traps of words and ideas. But you would truly pray that God would just do daily spirit transformation in your life that would show up in ways that you would respond and demonstrated obedience. I, I pray that every, every day that you would ask for God's wisdom through His Word and, and for His Spirit to, to help you to respond in a way that reflects him, that that represents him, that's demonstrated obedience. And and just like the the tuning of the instruments, if we're going to demonstrate obedience, we have to know what obedience is. We can't tune to something that we don't know what it is. So that's why things like spending time in God's word and memorizing it both individually and together, that's why those are so helpful for us because they begin to shape and inform our thinking in such a real and powerful way, now we know what it is that God has called us to. See, apart from that, we could so easily fool ourselves into thinking that we have faith. But true faith here is demonstrated obedience to God's word. That's what James is laying out for us, and that's that's what he's he's called us to. So I, I, I want us to consider our faith. I want us to consider our daily dependence. I want us to consider that. I want want us to continue to to commit to to a memorization together. That these would be the default thoughts in our minds. As we say, nobody talks to you more than you do. (laughs) So that that this would change the, the loop in our minds and the way that we would think to where in those quiet moments, in those quiet times, I'm thinking, understand this my dear brothers and sisters. And lastly, as we we respond to God's word this morning as we share communion together, that that we would be reminded of the visible and tangible picture of the gospel, that we would remember his body given for us, his blood, the new covenant that, that joins us together. That this is a celebration of what God has not only done in us individually, but what God is doing in our lives as the family, as the body of Christ. That as we remember this this morning, both visibly and tangibly, that we would want our lives to be more than just claimed actions of faith. That, That we would be reminded of what God has done in us and for us through Christ and that would be our source of encouragement this morning to say yes i want to leave no doubt i want to leave no doubt to my family i don't want anybody to get want to get to a funeral and say well i don't know i mean he seemed like a decent enough guy i don't want to leave any doubt in my to my neighbors to my coworkers to the people who saw me along the way, I don't want to leave any doubt to them whether or not I had true faith in Jesus. I want to live a life that can only be explained by God's good gospel of grace. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. Thank you for the challenge. The challenge that James lays out for us, especially when we recognize how easy it is sometimes to to play like we're Christians. But God, your word exposes us here. It, it shows us who we truly are. Even as your word says, it's like, it's like looking in a mirror. It shows us the reality of who we are. God, don't, don't let us walk away and forget what we look like, but help us to look longingly into your perfect law, the law that sets us free. The law that shows us our desperate and daily need for you. God, I pray that for each one of us here, we wouldn't wouldn't glance away from this passage and say, well, that really doesn't apply to me. But we would look long and hard and consider, God, we we want our lives to to demonstrate, whether it's how we respond to your word or how we respond to those hurting in our community or even how we respond to one another. God, we want your word to to shape us and change us in such a way that it will leave no doubt. It will leave no doubt that our lives have been transformed by your grace and your mercy. And it is your spirit living in us and teaching us and guiding us. God, help us to be people who find their strength and their confidence in you. Help us be people who just don't don't claim something that's not real, but lean into you and demonstrate the complete dependence that comes from your word. In your heavenly name, amen. And I am going to invite you to respond as we remember together. That in just a moment, we're going to...